on that virtually the last part of the Bible. And we're going to read from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through to 22, verse 6. Thanks, David. Shouldn't be too hard to find, should it? Reading from verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, there were three, ga- three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who t- talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That's about 2,200 kilometres. And as wide as it was high, long, he measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick. That's 65 metres by men's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chaldesoni, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase. 
the eleventh Jacinth and the twelfth Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. The city does, need not, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no light there, no night there, sorry. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign for ever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Amen. And may God add to our understanding that word from his word. Sunday school seems like the place to be this morning. It's going to be nice and full out there in, in the crash. Uh, we should pray for the kids in Sunday school because, uh, you know, they, they're getting great teaching uh, next door as we've been taught God's word here. And so uh, shall we pray for them as we pray for ourselves? Father, we do uh, want to uh, thank and praise you for the opportunity to learn from your word and to have our eyes and our hearts and our minds opened to... Uh, uh, the heavenly reality that we read about in this passage. Father, we thank you for the kids and we do pray that as they uh, dig into your word themselves that they would be firmly uh, rooted in Christ and in his gospel and uh, that they would grow and flourish as Christians uh, through uh, the teaching that they're receiving and the modelling that they uh, are exposed to within the, the church family. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you uh, can think for a moment about what you think that uh, heaven will be like. And uh, I want you to think about what uh, the sorts of things that you're looking forward to about heaven. Uh, one of the fellows in the nine o'clock service spoke to me afterwards and he said, when you've asked that question, Scott... He said, I'm looking forward to more comfortable pews in heaven, thank you very much. <laughs> and I thought, brother, you won't need more comfortable pews because you won't have those aches and those pains that you have uh, than you experience now. But uh, to be honest, some of the ways that heaven is portrayed in popular culture 
it doesn't really sound all that appealing. Um, uh, like the images of St Peter uh, standing at the pearly gates asking threatening questions to people. Uh, or, um, you know, the classic image that you see in pictures or in the movies, so, you know, the, the angels with their halos and their wings with the very strange soft lighting and floating around on clouds and playing harps for all of eternity. Maybe you're into that sort of thing, but uh, for some of us, that, you know, eternity like that, no, thank you very much. Um, or is heaven the place where you just get to do all of the things that you enjoy doing, um, but uh, do it forever? Uh, guys, if you like fishing or sailing, bad news for you in uh, verses 1 and 2 of the passage we're looking at, says no more sea. Uh, is that what you look forward to with respect to heaven? That, uh, you know, that often our, he- our, our vision of heaven is shaped by what we think the ideal life would be and we somehow want to extend that out for all of eternity. And there's a certain truth in that, but uh, we need to really look at what God's word says uh, about heaven. Um, in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, uh, we come to what you know is perhaps one of the clearest pictures of heaven in the scriptures, and uh, you know, and a clear picture of what it is that those of us who are trusting in Jesus can look forward to uh, in eternity. So why don't we open up our Bibles now at Revelation chapter 21 and uh, let's see what uh, God revealed to John on the island of Patmos where he was uh, in exile at the time. And uh, the first couple of verses are helpful where he says there, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So what does John see? Well, the first thing to note is that there is a new heaven and a new earth. And and so there is a new reality. We know from other parts of scriptures that it is a physical reality. In 1 Corinthians, we're told that the body that we're resurrected in is a real physical uh, but nonetheless a spiritual body. It's a, it's a, it's a perfect body. But uh, John, much of what we read in Revelation, of course, is symbolism, is picture language. And here John says that he sees uh, there's a new heaven, a new earth, so there is a new reality, there is a new city, the new Jerusalem. So what can we make of this? What, um, how do we understand this? I saw a preacher on TV a number of years ago. It was very early one morning. I should have been uh, in bed sleeping, but instead I was up watching TV and uh, there was this tele-evangelist that was on and he was preaching to a crowd much bigger than this crowd here. It looked like several thousand people. And he was uh, telling them how he had gone to heaven and that God had sent him back from heaven to tell us all what heaven is like. And uh, he said that uh, what he saw was fantastic. 
He said that it was this uh, incredible city. Uh, everyone lived in beautiful uh, new apartments, that the apartments were luxurious, um, that they had the luxurious swimming pools and gymnasiums and everyone was driving around in very flash, very expensive cars and it was a, was a great life and uh, God had sent him back to, to earth, back to us, to explain to us that that's what heaven is like uh, because God wanted, wants us to start living that life now, that the picture that you have of heaven should determine how you, the priorities that you establish for yourself and how you live now. And so he was a, an advocate of what they called the prosperity gospel, that uh, you know, uh, live uh, the, the luxurious, um, the materialistic life now because that's a foretaste of heaven. Uh, I thought he was just a false teacher, um, a wolf uh, very thinly dressed in sheep's clothing. But uh, it's interesting to, to consider because this idea that heaven, uh, of heaven being described as a city uh, does come uh, from this passage. And uh, as we've seen, uh, the book of Revelation is immensely symbolic and it seems that there is some symbolism here because if you look at very carefully at verse 2, in verse 2, what is this city? The, the city is described as being a, what does it say? A bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And uh, we see if you have a look at, down further at verse 9, similar sort of, uh, language there on verse 9 it says one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb so he's going to show John the bride he says come with me I want to show you the bride I want to show you the wife of the lamb and so he takes him to a mountain great and high and what does he show him he shows him a city. He shows him the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so uh, what is this city? Well, the city is the bride of Christ. And Now, uh, in the scriptures, what is the bride of Christ? The bride of, the ch of Christ is, in Ephesians, the bride of Christ is the, is the church. And uh, th this is something which we see also reflected uh, back in chapter 19 of Revelation in verses 6 to eight, where uh, John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And so it seems there that the bride is the faithful people who've put their trust in Christ, who've stood firm to the end, and who are dressed with their righteous acts. Uh, they are adorned with, uh, with their godliness. And so the bride is the church, and the city represents those people who've stood firm for Christ despite the persecutions and the difficulties, and they are now gathered together. 
Um, in this passage, John uses four different pictures to describe the bride, the city. Uh, first, of all, first of all, in verses 9 through to 14, the city is pictured as being complete. Uh, the number 12 appears five times. Uh, there, there's a big wall around the city. It has 12 uh, gates. Uh, it has 12 angels. The names of the 12 tribes are written on the gates. Uh, it has 12 foundations with the names of 12 apostles. Uh, written on the foundations. And so what we have here, uh, symbolically, is a, is a picture of the complete people of God. The uh, people of God in terms of the 12 tribes of Israel, those who've put their faith in, in and trust in God in the Old Testament, and the people of God who have believed the message of the 12 apostles. So it's the, it's the complete people of God. Now, secondly, in verses 15 through to 21, it's, a, it's also a picture of, of glory. And here, uh, the dimensions of this city are described, and the dimensions are quite fascinating. Uh, the city is described actually as being a cube. I don't know if you noticed that, because it's, it's, it's long, it's wide, and it's high. It's, it's a cube, and its dimensions are 12 stadia cube. And as uh, uh, David pointed out in the reading, uh, a stadia, or 12 stadia, is 2,200 kilometres. So there's your city. It's 2,200 kilometres uh, long, 2,200 kilometres wide, 2,200 kilometres high. It's a giant cube. Um, 2,200 kilometres is a long way, isn't it? Um, that's, if, you, if you drive the most direct way that you can from Brisbane through to Adelaide, uh, that's about 2,050 kilometres. So it's about 150 kilometres further on. Right? That, that's the kind of... And, and to John's readers, that would have been about the length and the width of the entire world that they knew. Uh, at that time. So what it's saying is that this is just, you know, imagine the biggest thing that you can imagine and that's it. Now, um, and look at how it's decorated uh, in verses 18 through to 21. In verse 18 it says, The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth. You get the idea, don't you? Uh, Twelve gates were twelve pearls and so on. Um, Now, does this mean that it's, you know, a bit like what the physical kind of city that the televangelist was talking about, you know, that you can walk down the street of pure gold and that you can, uh, you know, you don't even have to fossick for sapphires, you can just sort of pick them up. I don't think so, because as we've seen, this great symbolism in this concept of the city representing the people of God, and this really is the decoration of the city. This is the clothing of the bride. Uh, 
And uh, how is the bride clothed? Well, in chapter 19, verse 8, she's clothed with righteous deeds, saying this is just fantastic and it's showing what the beauty of the righteous deeds of people are, that they're as beautiful to God as all of these incredible gems and, and, and stones are to us. Um, when I fly down to Sydney from time to time, uh, when I get to the counter there uh, um, at the Port Macquarie Airport, I usually ask for a window seat. Um, two reasons. One, I'm a big kid. I like to look out the window. Number two, on a sunny morning, flying low in descent over Sydney Harbour, uh, you look down on the glorious harbour, the majestic bridge, the glistening sails of one of the most spectacular buildings in the world, and I just think to myself, yep, this is the best city that there is. You ever feel that way? Sometimes I'm sure. Well, you know what? Uh, uh, the Jews thought the same about Jerusalem. You know, perched you know, on Mount Zion there, the, the beautiful temple, the beautiful palace, the beautiful everything that they loved was... But here John is saying the old Jerusalem with all of its glory is nothing compared to the glory of the godliness of the gathered heavenly people of God, his new Jerusalem. Now, thirdly, the new Jerusalem has no temple. Uh, we see that in verses 21, uh, chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. Uh, he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, one of the great promises of God in, to Israel in the Old Testament was that uh, they would have a special relationship with him, that uh, he would be their God, that they would be his people, and that he would dwell with them. Now, there's a good number of passages in the Old Testament that uh, state that very precisely. Uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 to 13 is one of them where God says, I will put my dwelling place among you, I will not abandon you, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And we see how that worked out uh, in the Old Testament as God interacted with Israel all of the time. Uh, how he blessed them, how he uh, uh, disciplined them, how he guided them, and so on. And God's presence amongst his people Israel was, uh, was physically symbolised and demonstrated to the, to the other nations uh, at first by the tabernacle, the tent that they uh, carried around with them in the wilderness wanderings 
where they would go to to meet up with God. Um, more, and later on, under the rule of Solomon, it was not the tabernacle that, that symbolised God's presence, it was the, the temple. It was the temple. But even Solomon, when he was consecrating the temple uh, and prayed, he said that uh, there's no way, this is, this is symbolic, this is a symbol, because there's no way that the God who created the universe can be squeezed into a box, uh, into, into a building. And so the temple symbolised God's presence amongst his people. But it symbolised a reality that uh, would come later on. When uh, Mary was pregnant with Jesus and the angel spoke to Joseph, he said, and he told him about the babe that had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, he said, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Uh, this baby will be God with us. Uh, in a sense, can you have God dwelling amongst you in a more profound sense than for God to actually become one of you and to live with you? Uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, uh, John, say, referring to Jesus as the Word, says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14, uh, it said that uh, it says that, um, and the Word came and dwelt with us, that he tabernacled with us, that he pitched his tent with us. And so God's presence with his people is, uh, finds its <clears throat> uh, that, that great fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. When Jesus left, to go to his father's right hand, did he leave us alone? Well, no. He said to his disciples, "When I will not leave you as orphans, but rather that uh, when I go to be with my father, I will send to you the Comforter, uh, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, uh, on the day of Pentecost, uh, God the Spirit comes and God the Spirit fills uh, his people and they begin to go around preaching the gospel. And so what we see is that in the coming of Jesus, God dwelt amongst us and so that everything that the temple represented, Jesus is. And in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes uh, and fills us, it means that God now dwells in those of us who trust in the gospel so that we are now the temple uh, of, of God. And so therefore, when John saw the heavenly Jerusalem, he says there was no temple there. You don't need a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are present. They are there. Uh, they are, the whole thing is like the temple. Because God is dwelling with his people uh, in that heavenly reality. And so, whilst there's no temple there, in verses 23 to 26, there are two things which are there that fill the heavenly Jerusalem. First of all, the light of God. Um, you see, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, says, Now we see just very dimly. 
but then we shall see fully. And uh, so the light of God radiates uh, in the heavenly reality. And secondly, it is filled with nations. It's filled with the people of every race. Uh, People like you and me uh, belong to the new Jerusalem. And these... Um, This description in verses 23 to 26 of the the glory of God giving it light, the lamb being its lamp, that the nations walking by its light, the kings of the earth coming into the splendour of it, bringing their splendour into it, um, the idea of the gates never being shut um, and the glory and honour of the nations coming into it. um, These Verses here are actually uh, were foretold uh, way back by the prophet Isaiah. And so later on, if you care to look at Isaiah chapter 60, and the verses that are listed for you there, you'll see that these exact same things were foretold by Isaiah of the New Jerusalem. Now the fourth image is the image of a garden. Um, chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of, and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamb or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Well, you know, the picture that we've looked at so far is that of a city but here... It's described more as a garden because this, so it's, got a, it's got a river running through it and there's trees on either side of the river. And it seems that right here at the very end of the Bible uh, we're reminded of a part of the Bible much closer to the very beginning of the Bible, aren't we? Um, we're reminded of the Garden of Eden because in Eden God and man were in perfect fellowship with one another. Uh, God walked around in in the garden and God's presence uh, was there in that perfect uh, manner. But Adam and Eve's sin changed all of that. And because they chose to rebel against God, to follow their way, not God's way, they were cursed and they were expelled from the garden. And uh, God placed cherubim and uh, a flashing sword at the entrance so as to prevent them from re-entering and gaining access to the tree of life. Uh, No longer would eternal life be theirs. Uh, They would die. And they would not enjoy that perfect fellowship with God. What John describes here is the reversal of all of that. 
In verse 25, far from a flashing sword, uh, the gates of this place are flung wide open. The gates are never shut. And why? Well, take a look at verses 2 and 3. Because no longer will there be any curse. There is access to the tree of life. There is access to healing. Um, In Genesis chapter 3, the curse that God placed on that ancient serpent was that uh, one day the woman's offspring would, would crush his head. Remember that? Would crush his head. That the curse would be reversed and that Eden would be restored. Now this is the victory that Christ has won on the cross. <laughs> Satan thought it was his victory. But in fact as his power was taken away from him, as the guilt for our sin was paid for, and as Christ rose victorious over death, Satan was defeated. The offspring of the woman crushed his head. Friends, when does eternal life begin? I wonder if we sometimes think that eternal life begins when we die and go to heaven, uh, if we put our trust in Christ. Do you think that way sometimes? Actually, Eternal life begins before that. Eternal life begins when we are filled with the presence of God in the person of his Holy Spirit. Eternal life begins when we trust in Jesus, who is the river of life. Uh, Eternal life begins as we receive the healing of forgiveness. Eternal life begins when we enter into a relationship with God. And when when does that happen? That happens when we put our trust in Jesus, does it not? And we're born again of the Spirit. That is eternal life. Eternal life begins when when you come into a relationship with God through Jesus. And so if you've done that, If you are in a relationship with God through Jesus, then eternal life has already begun for you. It is now. But it may not feel that way. It often doesn't feel that way because life is not bliss. There's a lot of great things that we experience in life, but we experience uh, the frustration of sin We experience the frustration of our own sin. I hope that you experience the frustration of your own sin because we ought to. Uh, We experience the frustration of the sin around us, of the uh, corruption, the immorality, the ungodliness uh, that we face every day. Uh, When we go to work, when we go to school, Uh, when we interact with our society. And it's frustrating. And more than that, we see and we experience pain and we experience suffering and we experience death. These things which are the result of the fall, these things which are part of the curse. 
And the reason that we experience those things is because we live in the overlap of the ages. Um, because there is the old age, the age uh, which, uh, which is symbolised in the book of Revelation by the city of Babylon. And uh, Babylon, uh, in chapter 17, uh, is described as, the, uh, as Babylon the prostitute. That is the age of sin. That is the age uh, where people live in rebellion against God and follow the evil one. It is the city of Babylon, uh, the prostitute. Then there is the new age, which is symbolised by the new city of Jerusalem, who is the bride. Very different realities. And between the first and the second coming of Jesus, uh, there is the, uh, the, 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 the two ages overlap. And we live in the overlap. Uh, we, live, we live in Babylon, but we belong to Jerusalem. And that is why we experience the frustrations, because we have a relationship with God God dwells in us by his spirit, but we're living in a world that is fallen. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Put an end to Babylon. Now, what do you think that heaven will be like? Um, many of our questions about heaven uh, will not be answered until we get there. And there are good, reasonable questions for us to ask and good, you know, as I say, you know, there is a physical reality to it. We have physical bodies and, and so on, the resurrection bodies, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, what will that be like? What will our relationships be like? We know there's no marriage in heaven, um, that we know. But the important question has already been answered and that is that on the day that Jesus returns that Babylon will be destroyed, that this present age will be done away with as judgment falls on Satan and on those who do not trust Jesus. This is the second death that Revelation talks about. What do you look forward to most about heaven? Well, more comfortable pews maybe. But how about this? How about a life lived in perfect knowledge, in perfect relationship, in perfect fellowship, in perfect unity with the God who created the entire universe? How about that? How about seated around his throne, perfectly worshipping him, and praising him and glorifying him because your heart and your mind and your life is not distracted by temptation and by sin. So how about this? How about living for all of eternity in a reality where there is no sin, where sin has been done away with, when your own personal sin is no more where there is no sin in the reality in which you exist. For we're told 
that there is no corruption in heaven. How can we be let in? Only because of the blood of Jesus that's paid the guilt for our sin and has made us new. Is that what you're looking forward to in heaven? That's a great reality. I guess if there's one thing we can learn from the tele-evangelist, uh, he's saying that uh, get your vision of heaven right and start living that way now. <laughs> he had a different vision of heaven. This is the vision of heaven that we need to get right. And so we need to work now at, um, at uh, becoming comfortable as citizens of that reality, uh, hating sin and loving and worshipping our God together now and then forever. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for uh, what's been revealed to us in the scriptures. Lord, we don't pretend to understand it all and uh, we don't pretend to have plummeted the depths of uh, this uh, great passage from your word. But we do thank you, Father God, for the picture of glory and grandeur that we uh, have of your gathered, redeemed people uh, of a reality without sin and the effects of sin. And Father, we pray that as we live this life now that we would have that vision set before us, that we would persevere through all of the difficulties and the trials and temptations of this life, knowing that that is what awaits. And Father, that we would start living that way now, uh, loving you, uh, praising you, honouring you, and uh, dealing with sin in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.